You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I'm really honored to be joined by Dr. Ron Ruthruff, a professor at the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, a writer, and a leader in his community in so many ways. I originally met Ron at the Seattle School when I was attending for my graduate degree, and he shook up a lot of things for me, especially around intercultural and race conversations and relations. And as people in our world that is becoming more global, more diversified, and as followers of Jesus, this is an important conversation. It is important to recognize how do we listen well? How have we been shaped? And what does that mean in terms of power structures and the systems that we are a part of? How do we love and serve well? How do we enter into becoming a world that is a more just place where everyone is welcome at the table? And so I can't truly do justice to the conversation that we have here today because Ron takes us to some amazing places from the past, understanding how we got to where we are, sharing about the present and even looking toward the future. So friends, I believe you will be challenged, blessed and encouraged by our conversation. I do highly recommend checking out the links in the description below. Take notes on the resources that Ron mentions because there are some great ones. But with that, friends, I'm grateful that you're here and I hope that in some way you are invited forward in your walk with this conversation with Dr. Ron Ruthruff. Ron, welcome to the Rua Space Podcast. It's such an honor to get to chat with you today. I know you had an impact on my development, and I'm excited to bring that to the audience today. Well, it's it's uh, fun to be with you as a colleague and not to be sitting in front of you as a professor anymore. So hopefully we can have this conversation as two friends uh, rather than sort of a historical professorial student relationship that we once had. But I hope I hope I was able to downplay a lot by uh, my horrible dress code and my um, and my somewhat foul mouth. So I apologize. You know, it fits in it fits in Seattle well. You know, you're you're a professor in Seattle among many other things. And I'll never forget my my uncle was once visiting Seattle and he had a meeting at Amazon and we picked him up after and he he's from the Midwest and he goes, you guys should have told me. He's like, I was the only person in the room with a tie on. It's like you should have made me aware that Seattle is very dressed down. So yeah, yeah. When I did my doctorate in Boston. I literally, they called me Seattle because they asked me if I owned a suit coat or if I owned a tie and I didn't own either one. And so they labeled me Seattle and called me that the rest of the time. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, one of the things that you helped start my journey on and um, my hope is I've come some way since was intercultural competency. And it's come to the forefront even more over the past few years with um, Colin Kaepernick and the movement right of kneeling and Black Lives Matter and just these horrific deaths of multiple men at at the hands of police. And as Christians, our response has been quite varied kind of all over the map. And so I am hoping we can talk a little bit about our, our, you know, you teach a class on this and and can you tell us a little bit of how it's broken down? I know there's three phases to this class and I think that can guide our conversation here today as well. 
Yeah, and first I would say as a bigger umbrella statement, um, it's very, very difficult for me to have a conversation about theology or anthropology or theology without the integration of race and class and um, all sorts of markers that are either manufactured markers or actual markers of identity. And so uh, I teach a class called Word on the Street. Uh, it's really a class of what does it mean to be a therapeutic presence in a multicultural setting? Um, I teach another class called All Religious Impulse, which is a class on what does it mean to be Christian in a world full of religions, um, and teach a variety of, of uh, classes that have to do with engaging in the globe uh, in a different way. So um, I taught internationally in Guatemala, Vietnam, Cambodia, uh, Kenya for a few years before coming to the school. I have dear friends and colleagues there. So for me, those questions um, need to be integrated in all of our areas of study because for too long, whiteness, which is not an ethnicity, but just a racial construct, whiteness has been centered. And in centering that and making something else exotic or ethnic or foreign or other, I think we begin to, uh, we begin to conflate things that are really problematic when it comes to power and control over building community and truly trying to live in what we call the kingdom of God. Yeah, and, and people may, I, I like how you said, you know, you have to have those conversations as a part of theology and as a part, I think, of even living out our faith, right? I mean, this was central to what Jesus taught is love God and love others, right? And how did he so frequently do that? By going to the person frequently labeled as the other. Like it's our faith isn't just our beliefs, right? But it's played out in our relationships. And I know that there's people all over the world listening to this, but the majority is in the United States, you know, United Kingdom, Canada, these types of countries. As followers of Jesus, we have to pay attention to this as, as central to our faith formation. Exactly. And so, and that gets us a little bit fell into the class word on the street. You know, one of the things that when um, I began to design this with a friend of mine um, and a colleague, Richard Kim, who you probably know, uh, uh, we, we began to say that really the class needed to have three movements, kind of a past lineage or historical movement. It then need to have a, a present reality or how do we sort of relate interpersonally based on that history? And then how do we as Christian people, as followers of Jesus, have what I would de define and Walter Brueggemann might define as a prophetic imagination, an imagination of something completely different. Um, and when you mention, you know, Great Britain or Europe and the United States, we as most of us as descendants from Europe have a very, very, uh, we have a very specific history when it comes to dealing with race and class. And that has worked itself out in the world in the form of colonialism. And it's caused us to relate to people different. But in the United States, um, two things, the extraction of the black body from Africa and making them an enslaved people and the, um, the bulldozing of indigenous land, both has caused us to have a way of relating to the world um, that is, pro is problematic. So in this class, we actually have to sort of pay attention to these three movements. How is our history shaped our relating and how has it limited our imagination for something other and different in relationship to what we are as followers of Jesus? 
Yeah, because if we're going to dig into where we are today, it's obvious, right? We need to know kind of how how we got here. And I know, in, in and again, of course, my hope is for people, this is a launching point into some books and other resources that we can share at the end and I'll put in the description. So we can't get into all of it, but could you maybe share just a couple things that that help people sort of understand how did we get to where we are? Because someone listening to this may say, hey, I'm on board, I get it. Others may say, I don't really see it. I, 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 I don't hate people of, of another skin color. So share the system a little bit and help us sort of see this wider perspective of where we're at and kind of how we got here, which again, I know you can't do full justice to it, but maybe right. a little picture right. of it. Well, I would, I would suggest three books off the top that I think are very helpful and, and somewhat dense. But Nell Painter writes a book called The History of White People, where in it, she just begins to explore the term Caucasian and where that term actually came from. Yeah. And that that's an anthropological term kind of originating with Frederick, Frederick Blumenbach. It was actually a term that was allocated to white people, but really it was derived from a skull that was found in the Caucasus Mountains. Now, I know, Phil, I know you a little bit. I know you're not really Caucasian. You've probably never been to the Caucasus Mountains. We don't know anything about caucus dancing. I don't know anything about caucus customs or caucus food. I don't know what caucus, traditional caucus people wear as far as clothing. But I think the curiosity for me comes in like, how did I get labeled Caucasian? And Painter in her book basically argues that because of the attractiveness of the skull and actually the size of the school, the implication meaning brain capacity, um, were all what led Frederick to um, inappropriately, and in some ways erroneously, label white people as Caucasian. So that's a very helpful starting point when we begin to think, oh, this goes back to the Roman Empire. This goes back to deep, deep insidious ways of viewing beauty and intelligence as embodying some bodies and not necessarily being present to the same degree in others. So that's a very important historical prompt. The other one I think that's a really important prompt is the, is the work of Ron Takaki. Ron Takaki, um, a Hawaiian born Japanese man who began to talk about epistemology and how do you know what you know. And he writes a whole book on the migration patterns of people and the immigration patterns of people coming to the United States. So his big argument sociologically is push and pull factors, how folks were brought to this country or how folks ended up in this country says a lot about how they related to the American dream. And then the third work historically is the works of Ibram Kendi. Ibram is a young his, uh, historian actually from Florida. I think he teaches somewhere down uh, in your neck of the woods, as my mother would say. Oh, nice. And yeah, yeah. And he's a brilliant young scholar that begins to frame what are some of the constructs that, that created a racialized society. And this stamp from the beginning book um, begins to argue that racist ideas don't necessarily create racist policy, but racist policy is actually supported or are propped up by racist ideas. That the ideas of Thomas Jefferson, if we begin to examine, 
are not nearly as Christian as they are deist. And in deist thinking, someone has to continue to move the ball along that God initiated. And Thomas Jefferson believed in a certain concept called white exceptionalism and believed in that exceptionalism that we were basically called to rule and reign with God over the earth. Actually, if you check out the, the sort of theological frames of Thomas Jefferson, he's far more like the Caesar in the Roman Empire, or he's far more like Nazi Germany than he is like the revolutionary that we follow from Nazareth. Um, but we've, uh, we've somehow, um, we've oversimplified the understanding of Christian theology and we've made it an American religion. And I think American religion has far more to do with race and power and class and patriarchy than it does with um, the person that they're reflecting on those four very radical gospels that we read. Yeah, you know, I think um, he wrote the book, I think it's called, is it called How to Be an Anti-Racist? Was that the name of the book? Oh, Ibram Kendi? Yes, he's yes. written a couple. Um, his first book that won uh, just an incredible amount of awards was called Stamped from the Beginning. Okay. And in Stamped from the Beginning, he says, because of our history, there's only three types of people, segregationist, assimilationist, or anti-racist. And he says assimilationists are people that want everybody to ascribe to kind of a white-centered way of being. Segregationists are hoping to separate the, the two groups apart in some sort of way. This is very oversimplified. And then anti-racists are people that are intentionally looking historically at what systems have been propped up and used to perpetuate racist ideas and how do we deconstruct or unravel some of those systems for, an, for a more uh, equal or equity-based society. Um, so he argues there's no such thing as a non-racist. There's only such thing, uh, there's only such a thing as an anti-racist, which I think is a really interesting concept. It was, his, I found his book very helpful and very eye-opening because I, the conversation, and I, this used to be the, con this used to be my response. And I'm not saying I'm there yet. My hope, you know, I've realized, especially recently, and I don't know, maybe Ron, you can look at your own life and say this, but I look at the jobs I did five years ago or 10 years ago. And I think, oh my goodness, like, what was I doing? I, I like, maybe I could do that job now with the way I've grown, but back then I wasn't ready. And, and it's interesting because I'm sure 10 years from now, I'll look back and, and have formed even further and be like, oh my goodness, who was I? I thought I was all woke then, but now I'm right, 10 right. years down the line. But one of the things that, that, that has changed for me is, you know, I grew up with a friend down the street who is black, one of my best friends. Um, and so I always thought, well, I'm not racist. Like I have a black friend. I don't dislike black people. I'm, I, I'm not racist, but his book and, and your class and other sort of um, guides and conversations have really opened me to understanding the system and the benefits I gain from being a part of that and how this is a much larger thing than just how I consciously, right, react. And I know you, there's a few different ways we could go with that. But I think for a lot of people listening, they might say, hey, hey, I love my neighbor who's Asian, so I'm not racist. But it's not that simple, right? Right, right. Well, first of all, Maya Angelou uh, would encourage you uh, to, to simply embrace kind of who you are. And, and she says, no better, do better, right? So all of us are in a spot of always knowing better and doing better. And I would first of all say that as a, as a man who feels like in my adult life, 
this being brought to the forefront of my life because of where my wife and I chose to raise our family, where we chose to send our kids to school, where we chose, and I, I say choice, which is a powerful word, where we, where we chose to interact in our, in our community and go to church and all that, we, that proximity actually illuminated not how woke we were, but how deeply racist some of our ideas were and how centered right. on whiteness they were. Um, thus, the, the whole comment around, oh, I have a white friend or I have an Asian doctor, or isn't it great that I have a black um, massage therapist? And anytime we do those sort of things, it begins to narrate what is the norm and what is a departure from the norm. And so what I find is that all of us who do that begin to say white is normative, white is accepted. And really what we're saying is I need to clarify with an adjective who this person is because it's so out of the norm of my experience. I have to tell you that I have an Asian this or a black this or a Native American this. Right. And that, that begins to illuminate the problem that uh, white people, because of um, things like doctrines of discovery, where we were entitled to discover the world, manifest destiny, where we actually believe it's our destiny um, to, uh, to rule and reign with God, this idea of white exceptionalism, which is um, Kelly Brown Douglas does a really good job in um, called Black Bodies and the Justice of God. I think that's the subtitle. Kelly Brown Douglas does a great job of talking about that exceptionalism in her book. Um, but all that to get to your, to your point is there is no possible way that I could remove myself from my own family system to relate to the new family I'm married to completely organically without that history influence. Anybody who's married knows this, or anybody who's partnered knows this, right? That I come into my relationship with my partner relating to the world, the concepts that I had as a young person, as a child, the way I saw my parents relate to each other, the way we interacted with church, the way we engage in parenting. It's no different when we start talking about race and ethnicity. Our collective history has not only shaped how we relate interpersonally, but getting to the heart of your question, it's, it's related to how we construct systems and it's related to how people relate to those systems, um, whether they feel like they have the power to access them or they have the power or they don't have the power to access them. One of the ways this became unmistakably clear was a few years ago when my sons attended middle school, and this is a few years ago because my sons are now 33 and 30 and are both teachers in uh, elementary and middle school. We have a whole family of teachers, which is sort of terrifying. We talk about pedagogy a lot at the kitchen table. <laughs> but um, I remember when Linda uh, showed up at a PTA meeting and happened to be the only parent there with the principal. And because she showed up at the PTA meeting, she was voted in quickly into the role of PTA president. Aki Krosi Middle School Academy was, an, was a junior high school that was 90% people of color, or they called it 90% minority. Mm. How do you help, how do you expect kids to pass math exams when they're being told all through junior high, this is a joke, how <laughs> they're told all through junior high that 90% is major, major, majority or minority. 
you can imagine what that does to the psychological frame of white yeah. kids, right? Being the majority and only being 10%. We also began to realize that even how people related to this institution called the PTA was based on power and privilege. Some people felt like they had all the authority in the world to relate to the school system as a parent who was paying for a product. Other people, based on where they sat in relationship to the system, felt very limited in their invitation. It took huge amounts of work to facilitate a dialogue in which all people that came to that PTA uh, meeting felt the same empowerment to speak and have authority because of the way they related to the system. That was nobody's individual fault. It was the way the system was designed and how some people felt like they had access to it and some people didn't. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. And, you know, one thing I remember, and I, I might be misquoting this here because it's been many years, but I believe we were reading at one point, you know, talking about schools, it reminded me of this, that in the same tax area, was it not true that different schools were getting different funding based upon the makeup of the school? Well, I mean, what is true is that, you know, the involvement of PTA and public school systems speak a lot. And tax packages, right? Tax packages are, uh, are part and parcel how schools get their funding. So if you have a school, uh, if you have a, a school in a neighborhood where there's not a lot of home ownership and you've got people that actually are renting out those homes that don't have a high investment in paying for tax levies, that definitely shapes the dynamics of the school. But even in a place like Seattle, this wonderful, enlightened, woke, liberal, progressive city, we literally operate with two school systems, one north of the Ship Canal and one south of the Ship Canal. Um, and that's based on PTA money. That's based on how people can raise money outside of that budget. It's also based on the census. Schools actually, uh, they, they increase and decrease their funding based on their enrollment, which is really, really problematic when it comes to smaller schools that don't have a lot of people that have signed up for them. And so they lose teachers. This is a really good example of this. In the middle of COVID, as our governor, and rightfully so, was saying, our schools need more nurses, more janitorial staff, far more infrastructure and teachers and support if we're going to limit the size of classrooms, if we're going to make it a healthy and safe environment for our children. That same week was the week that people began to sign their kids up for schools at the school that my wife is a teacher at. On that same day that the governor was making this promise, and this mandate that we had to change the way we did public education. Their school nurse, one of their janitors, a bunch of their assistant instructors, uh, a couple of their, uh, of their uh, reading specialists were all being cut from the budget. I mean, it was an absolute contradiction. And this is in a Title I school, which is um, based on reduced or free lunch. And so all of those dynamics play a role in that system. And so on an individual level, then, you know, for someone who's who's listening to this and um, is either, you know, on that journey or still a little resistant, kind of wherever we are, you know, there's there's one level, right, where we need to work on sort of the the anti-racist policy level, right, of 
um, shaping how policy and thing, things work. And so we can talk about voting, we can talk about, you know, working on that level. But for an individual, what might be a question we could ask ourselves or a way to think about our development? Um, maybe this is a good place. I know before we were talking about the three phases of, of wokeness that you talked about, or even the four ways of relating yeah, yeah, yeah. either one of those directions. What, how might people say, okay, I'm, I'm hearing you, but like, what do I do as myself? What, what does this mean? How do I begin to understand well, this? My, my first thing would be, um, even before we talk about the four levels of relating, I think there's two other sociological concepts that are really important. One is the concept of blind spots. And how do we pay attention to our own blind spots? What did our own socialization, our own context, our own upbringing, our own neighborhood actually cause us to miss? Um, there's a great movie that came out a few years ago called Blind Spotting about the relationship between a young African-American man um, and a young white man in a ever-changing Oakland, in a gentrifying Oakland. It's a great movie that begins to talk about what do you see, what do you not see? And even for this young white dude who was so down with the hood and so part and, and like was in like emotionally invested in proving that he was not as white as anybody else, even for him, the unwrapping of blind spots was a profound piece of the movie. And my argument is how you get to those blind spots is you begin to read memoir. You read a book like um, a book I just read called Saigon, literally spelled S-I-G-H-G-O-N-E by uh, a young man by the name of Phuc Tran. He basically describes his life growing up as a Vietnamese refugee uh, in the Northeast part of the United States. And literally mm -hmm. says in that book, as he, he became a punk rock skateboarder kid because he knew that that would be more noticeable and more despicable than his Vietnamese heritage. You read a book like um, Sharks in the Time of Strangers about a Hawaiian family that has to migrate to the city because they can't afford um, to survive in the agricultural environment that they literally were born into their land, their native land, their, their spiritual connected place of growing up. Um, so I think you read memoir and you read fiction and you read things that begin to help you discover what do I not see? What do I wonder? What causes me angst? Why do they relate to the world differently than me? So I think that's one of the places you start. And then the other place you start, oh, go ahead, Bill. I, no, I, I, not to interrupt, but, you know, as you were saying that, so, uh, you know, one of the things that came up for me that I think in conversations I've had with people is when we hear those stories, people will often start to have a lot of feelings come up of vulnerability yeah, yeah. or guilt or um, just rejecting the whole thing because it's too uncomfortable. Sure. Can you talk about those feelings a little bit? Yeah, that's a, I, I want to get where you were going, but that, that came I up love it. right I, then. I, and I, I don't want to miss I that. I love it. I think that's a great place to, to pause. Um, especially if our story has been centered and we don't believe that we're part of a culture, but we believe that we just live the way things are. Um, it's very, very hard to engage cross-culturally and not just be frustrated. And I just encourage people to try to move beyond frustration towards fascination and to be able to, to, to log 
or to, to be attentive to those places that are frustrating you. And rather than project that outward as to, I wish they would do this. I wish they weren't like this. I think it's far more helpful to begin to say, what is the sociological frame that I have that is so uh, rigid that doesn't allow me to be at least curious about some other way of doing things or other ways of relating? I mean, this, this became unmistakably clear to me uh, in my relationship with my best friend who is from Samoa. Um, and we've been friends for 35 years in the neighborhood, we coached Little League together. I coached uh, his, um, his stepson in Little League. And we were at a, a church gathering uh, in the church that we both attended at the time. And our church was, um, let's just say they lacked a little administrative savvy. And so anything we tried to do administratively, it was always somewhat frustrating. So we decided this one Sunday we decided this one Sunday that we're going to do outreach Sunday. We're going to go in, into our neighborhood. We're going to pick up garbage and pass out water and be good neighbors, mow some lawns for some old ladies, you know, do some really good Christian social justice stuff. And so when it came time to get the, uh, to, to sort of send out all of the parishioners, I still remember our church that lacked a little administrative savvy and our pastor who didn't really care about good organizational structure. We began to realize that, Nobody had even organized garbage bags to pick up the garbage. There was no lawnmower. There was no yard tools. And I'm just livid. I am just livid. And I, I want to go up to the pastor. I want to tell the pastor, how, like, why would you, why'd you set us up like this? And I, I, can, you know, I, I can still feel animated, angry. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my buddy, Hala, as we're talking, he says, honey, if they don't have anything, why don't we just leave? And I'm like, yeah, I would love to just leave. The Seahawks are playing the Cardinals in about 45 minutes. I'd and he's like, we li you live a block away. Let's just walk to your house and watch the game. And I'm like, wait, no, but the pastor needs to know. He needs to be told this was disorganized. This was ridiculous. And Hala goes, if we leave, he'll know. You see, mm. Hala, from his cultural perspective, has a high power differential between leader and follower. This isn't right or wrong. This is just one way of relating to power. Because he relates to power that way, he would never disrespect or shame the leader by going up in, at a public event and saying, hey, you didn't have your stuff together. I'm not going to stay. He would vote with his feet. I, I come from a very different cultural perspective. I have a low power differential between leader and follower. I feel like it's my job and my right to go up and critique leadership. That's a fascinating cultural difference. Yeah. Neither one are right or wrong. It's just as we're in relationship with people that are different, all of a sudden my buddy teaches me there's other ways to interact with power besides these confrontational ways that white people feel like I'm gonna go, like you can vote, you can have a collective. I'm like all of, and so that's what I mean by learning how to relate in different ways and being fascinated rather than frustrated by cultural difference. I mean, the truth of that day was, Paul and I went to our house, we opened up some good food and, and a beverage and watched the game. And the next time we actually had one of those events, because people kind of had checked out, there was a little bit more organizational structure that happened to them. And not even to say that that's right or wrong, but just, 
the attentiveness to Hala's way of teaching me that I can vote with my feet as well with my mouth um, is a great cultural lesson. Yeah, and I, I and I appreciate the the vulnerability in that, right? The vulnerability of listening and um, being impacted by someone else, and the vulnerability of hearing how maybe we've made a mistake, or maybe there is another way of doing it. And it reminds me a little bit of when we're teaching people to enter into silence. There's a great discomfort with silence because all the stuff that you medicate or ignore is gonna come up in silence. So a lot of times we just ignore it completely and, and shove it out of the way. But when you can sort of engage that discomfort and enter deeper into it, there actually is like greater life on the other side. And I feel like this whole thing is a little like that. Like, yeah, you know what? If you enter, if you read some of the books you've suggested, get into memoirs, there's gonna be discomfort because that's what's with vulnerability. But along with that comes an invitation to life as well. And, and I, yes. Think, yes. I, I think yes. I just wanna encourage people, get into the discomfort, don't run away from it. This is what I would say. I would say that I think that one of the ways in which we've been shaped by exceptionalism is we feel like we should have the answer. Even to this question, we should have the answer. Yeah. And I would just submit that maybe, maybe coming to grips with our own limitation, as terrifying as that is, coming to grips with our own limitation actually makes room for another person's agency. So in some ways, it's this beautiful community ethic that says, if I don't know everything, if I don't know all the answers, if I can suspend my own judgment and my own way of thinking for a minute, maybe my friend comes to me with some advice or some idea or some perspective that can actually help and inform me. So that idea of, of being willing to be uncomfortable or that way of, uh, of being limited, I think actually makes room for a community ethic where we all collectively solve problems differently together. Absolutely, no question. So I do wanna to get to the four ways of human relating, which I think yeah, is related yeah, to this, yeah. but I know when you were talking with memoirs, if there was anything else you'd wanted to share there, I don't wanna have just let that no, drop I completely. Just, <laughs> memoirs, memoirs and fiction. I mean, I just, I continue to feel like um, uh, Saigon is a great one. Um, How to be black is a great memoir. Uh, another minor feelings is a great memoir. Um, but the fiction books are just as good. Uh, I think his name is Johnny Orange. He wrote a book called There, There, about urban Native American life in Oakland. Yeah. Um, there's, um, there's another book uh, that just came out. It's a novel called The Removed, about Native American people in Oklahoma. So I just find that those are, um, you know, I used to joke around that I never read fiction. I never read novel, blah, blah, blah. I only read, you know, I only read, I only read, you know, sociological history, race theory, all that sort of stuff. But those are very important. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think one thing I would, I would just say about that too is, you know, a major life shift happened for me when I was able to move to Israel and spend a lot of time with Palestinians, with Jewish people, with Muslims, with people across the board. And the faces, the real faces and the real stories 
automatically began to, for me at least to, to, to reshape. And so I would say on one level, literally getting to know other people, but I think you can have a similar experience with memoirs yes. and books yeah. that just yes. are a story that, that gives you a real flesh and blood, blood body, a real yep. person, not a label. It, 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 I think the work is going to start happening on its own to some extent when we are just exposed to story. Well, and this actually connects to your four ways of human relating. I, I think what's happened is because we have been um, in some ways blind to systemic realities in regards to health systems, in regards to prison or criminal justice systems, in regards to education systems, and how those actually treat and engage with people in a very different way. I think, uh, at least I can only speak for me as a white person, I've had expectations of the system that for the most part have been fulfilled. And if you come from an environment where, or a, a cultural background, where those uh, expectations have not been fulfilled, it changes that dynamic. But we usually get to a place very quickly in this conversation where people say, I have a black friend, or I wish I just got to know somebody. Now, in Divided by Faith, which is a, a dry, but good sociological study, on the evangelical church and why they haven't handled the race problem very well. They, they speak in terms of, it is important to um, have relationship, but the problem isn't just interpersonal. Meaning that there are ways in which we relate to the world that are systemic, that are organizational, the church we belong to, the Seattle School of Theology that I belong to. There's interpersonal ways of relating. And then there's another dynamic that I think is very important, and that's an intrapsychic way of relating. It's, it's how I form identity from the inside out and the outside in. It actually talks about my worldview and how I engage in the world. And uh, when I have students in this class, word on the street, watch a film and then actually begin to unwrap what would it mean to be a therapeutic presence for uh, a character in any of these films. And we're talking uh, uh, a whole bunch of films, a lot of films on race that I give them the choice of. I make them say, what are the systemic things that are going on in the film? What are the overarching umbrella what is, the, what is the infrastructure of this social dynamic that's limiting these people's ways of engagement? And then how is the organizations that they're a part of either helping or hurting their ways of relating? How is the church either fostering this or limiting this? And then two, what is the interpersonal dynamic? But the interpersonal dynamic is shaped by all those things bigger than itself and those ways of relating that I look inside myself. Because Jeff Chang says, race is a visual problem. It's what we see, it's what we think we see, and it's what we think about when we see it. That what we see is interpersonal, but what we think we see and what we think about what we see it is both intrapsychic, deep, buried within how we relate to the world from our own mind, but it's also very systemic, how the world has shaped what we perceive about certain people. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful way to to see it and understand it. And just to recognize again, I mean, the more I, I think just the, as I walk through life, 
I'm realizing more and more how mysterious and complex rather than simple, <laughs> if that makes sense, things yes. are. And just yes. to realize that anytime we try to boil it down to just this one thing or that, there's a lot of levels at work. And so I think the whole journey needs humility. And I think that's why we did that term vulnerability and the, the, the need to listen well, I think is, is just a, a big part of it that maybe, maybe rather than speaking, we just need to do a lot more listening and a lot more, yeah. um, a lot more accepting and giving of grace. And, you know, and, yeah. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, in Nazi Germany, when Adolf Hitler was trying to exterminate everything that was different than himself. And this came from a from a deeply, deeply insecure place, right? Like Germany had lost their standing in Europe after World War One. There was a sense that Europe that Europe had 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 abandoned Germany. There is um, there is an interesting dynamic that causes the insecurity that crops up after World War Two and before. Excuse me, after World War One and before World War Two that fosters this Nazi way of viewing the world. But as Adolf Hitler tries to exterminate all the things that are different than him because he wanted to make Germany great again, all of a sudden Dietrich Bonhoeffer comes out with this statement and he says, <clears throat> we have to listen with the ears of God before we speak the words of God. And then mm. he says something even more <laughs> radical in his book, Life Together, uh, <clears throat> horribly translated by Ron Rupiaf. The Jesus in you is much bigger than the Jesus in me. Hmm. Bonhoeffer is inviting Christians in Germany to look at the other and say something about my own social location, something about my own gender, something about my own sexual identity, something about my own racial constructs that have been socialized, that I've been socialized to believe are true, actually limit my perspective of Jesus. And so Bonhoeffer is encouraging the church in Germany to look at someone else and say, the Jesus in you is bigger because it allows me to see Jesus in a frame that is uh, far more complicated than what I am familiar with. I love that. Oh man, I'm going to be using that now. I mean, <laughs> that's, that is so good and so, so helpful of a, of a way to see it. So, Ron, I, I wish we could just go on talking about this forever, but my hope is this is um, at least challenged or, and encouraged people in some way, with some ways to keep the dialogue going, to listen, to, to see in a new way. But what encouragement or challenge might you lead people or, or leave people with? What, what might be a step you'd encourage? Where do people go from here? I know we've, we've, we've suggested things along the way, but what would be maybe yeah. a final word you would offer? Well, let me, let me uh, I'll do a final quote and then I'll do a final word. Uh, Audrey Love Lord it. in her brilliant book, Sister At Outsider says this, we have no patterns for relating across human differences as equals. We have no patterns of relating across human differences as equals. As a result, those differences have been misnamed and misused in the service of separation and confusion. My encouragement in the class is I bring in a bunch of people that I feel like have done this work far longer and far better and have great things to say. And I begin to ask students to have an imagination that actually begins to unwrap Audre Lorde's quote. If we do have no patterns of relating across human differences equals, 
How do we imagine a place where that could be done? And so my encouragement is, how do we begin as a Christian community to live differently than the world and to truly live differently than the world? And this is going to take some work. This is, this is not about conversion. This is, a, this is an element of spiritual formation. And so great writers like Eric Law, who've written really little dinky books of, uh, published by the Episcopal Church, have actually begun to teach us how to be multicultural spiritual communities. So my argument is begin to have a prophetic imagination one that begins to dismantle some of the ways that we've had to relate to each other in very toxic and unhealthy ways. And let's figure out systems in which people feel not only welcome, but invited to bring their whole selves. I appreciate that. And um, yeah, it, it would be easy to look and say, hey, Jesus is a great pattern. But even that, you know, we, we then have to tease that out in our own situations, right? And bringing our own history and, and everything into it. So I, I really appreciate that. And that imaginative piece. Uh, Jesus it, is a so great important. pattern. And this is, and this, I'll shut up after this, Phil. Uh, no, you, no. you can invite me back and we can talk about the Gospel of Luke specifically. And we can talk about how that was a pattern of relating it was deeply problematic for the culture that Jesus was in. Everybody who had political power or social clout ended up at a table with Jesus, and it felt like a family of origin dinner that we all wanted to walk out of. But when Jesus welcomed the marginalized, or when he actually, as a guest, went to the home of someone that was considered that didn't have any political power, any sort of religious clout, it ended up being like the dinner we all hoped to have at our table. Mm. And so that is a great conversation piece, just how Jesus does that in Luke across social and economic boundaries. Let's do it. I think that's a, that's a, Jesus is always a good place to start, right? To yeah, sort yeah, of see yeah, it. And, yeah. and he did that for sure. So Ron, where can people go deeper with some of the other work you've done to connect with what you're up to? Yeah. So I've written two books. Um, the first one was a memoir type book about all the lessons that street, kid taught, that street Kids taught me about theology. And then in about 2015, I released a second book called Closer to the Edge, Walking with Jesus for the World's Sake, where I tried to integrate some of these themes because I really wanted to know, with the rise of such a fragmented political system in, um, in America, and with the rise of the white evangelical church being in the middle of all of that fragmentation, I just wanted to write a book about what I thought it meant to be a Christian in that political climate. So that closer to the edge book is, is I'm proud of that book. It's a fun one. Um, but I would also say, uh, you know, any, you can't go wrong reading Ibram Kendi. You can't go wrong reading, reading uh, Nell Painter. You can't go wrong reading Ron Takaki or Jeff Chang or Eric Law or another guy that's an older gentleman who's truly an elder in this work as far as Christian reconciliation is a man by the name of John Perkins. And another woman that I think is doing great Christian racial reconciliation work is Brenda Salter McNeil. So those are just some of the names um, that I would tell people, Google those names and find out um, who they are, what they write. And I would say, start with a book like John Perkins, Let Justice Roll Down, if you've never read a book on race. It's a memoir, and it's a very good book about the life of a social activist that's a Black man from Mississippi. 
Awesome. And of course, hey, if you want to really go deep in all of this, you can go to the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology, go get one of the really awesome degrees and uh, yes. get to meet Ron in person. There you go. Study, uh, get an MATC degree, the Masters of Theology and Culture. And that's um, the degree that I get to teach in. So I would, awesome. I would love to have three students show up because of this. That'd be fun. I love it. Well, Ron, thank you so much for helping to uh, guide us into this conversation, for uh, bringing your presence and your knowledge and experience. Uh, it was an honor and uh, I really, it was really great to see you again. Thanks so much. It was really, really fun to uh, talk with you as a colleague, Phil. You're doing great work and uh, <laughs> you are what makes teachers come back at, uh, in the fall every year. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Hey friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just want to say thank you for being a part of this conversation, for joining us for this episode. I do highly recommend check out some of those links below that can take you to Ron's books, some other really great resources. And then also you'll notice down there is a link to our Rua Space Patreon page. This is a place where you can help support this ministry for just a few dollars a month while also gaining access to some really cool exclusive content, series, live events, other things that we do. So check out all those links below and we will see you in the next episode. Grace and peace, friends. Mm -hmm.